Welcome to our listeners to the Civics for Life podcast by the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network. Today, our guest is Carl Eikenberry, former ambassador to Afghanistan, who is here in Phoenix for our O'Connor Institute event. Welcome, Ambassador. It's good to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Our first question is, uh, Ambassador Eikenberry has a, has a really interesting background. Uh, you have a master's degree in East Asian studies from Harvard. You have an interpreter's certificate in Mandarin. You have a degree in Chinese history from Nanjing University. You spent years living in Asia and working in Asia policy. Yet after all that, you ended up ambassador to Afghanistan. So how did that happen? How did you manage that transition? And what are the implications of that move for folks considering life in public service? That's a, a great uh, question, Jonathan. After 9-11, the United States was confronted with a challenge of trying to develop as fast as it could an understanding of Afghanistan. We had a few experts. Uh, we had some in, acad in the academy who we could draw upon, but uh, not a lot. Why did I get chosen to go on my first tour of duty in Afghanistan in 2002-2003? Well, I, as you had said, Jonathan, had a pretty deep background in China. I had a pretty good proficiency at that time in Mandarin Chinese. And I think one of the skills that you develop with uh, language capability is an ability to listen more, to be empathetic, maybe to be more culturally sensitive and aware. I think that was part of the calculus of the leaders uh, that chose me to go on that mission to Afghanistan. Uh, as well, I had over the course of my career lived overseas. I I think I had a profile of somebody that was very comfortable out at grassroots level. You mentioned I had studied at Nanjing University. I did as a young army captain. I was out there by myself. So those are the kind of skills, the ability to listen, to be empathetic, to be very comfortable in foreign settings that can equip you uh, very well for moving into another culture that you may not understand well another language group that you'll be working with and that you may not be at all proficient at, mm -hmm. but you're predisposed then, I think, to learn faster and to adapt quicker, as I said, to be empathetic, to listen to people and understand their needs and their concerns. Mm -hmm. So did you end up learning Pashto or Dari or any of the Afghan languages? I mastered after about a year uh, 100 words of uh, Dari, <laughs> and uh, that was enough, I would tell you, Jonathan, to make the Afghans with whom I worked uh, very grateful that I would even make uh, that effort. But it was challenged with the sets of responsibilities that I had as a more senior leader to find the time to uh, spend focused on language training and developing a higher level of proficiency. Uh-huh. Can you talk just a little bit about what it was like to be ambassador to Afghanistan at the time you were there? There was a uh, kind of effort to draw down the scale of the war. And uh, we had already been there, of course, for a number of years. And and so can you just give us a little bit of flavor of, of what the environment was like when you were there? It, uh, it was a uh, extraordinary challenge when I went in to become the ambassador in Afghanistan in May of 2009, at that point, President Obama was increasing our level of effort in that country considerably. You'll recall that as candidate Obama in 2008, he had been critical of his predecessor, 
for uh, engaging heavily in Iraq, which he called a war of choice and a bad choice, and then neglecting what he called a war of necessity in Afghanistan. So when he became president and commander in chief, he committed early on to committing more resources, military to push back the Taliban, and also important on the civilian front to increase dramatically the size of our embassy and our resources that we had committed to aid and development. When I first became ambassador, we had about 325 Americans in our embassy in Kabul and then at field sites around the country. When I was to leave two years later, that number was now up to 1,450. The development budget when I became the ambassador was about $2 billion a year. The next year was $4.2 billion. So that was a challenge in and of itself of trying to operate at a much larger scale and ramp things up. Remember, for instance, if you're uh, bringing over a agricultural specialist, somebody from the Department of Agriculture, very used to working in rural Iowa, and now you're transferring them to a war zone called Afghanistan, that requires recruiting, has to be a volunteer, requires training, you have to have security and communications for that individual when they arrive and so on. So this was not a trivial exercise at all. I think that one of our challenges beyond just scaling up is then making decisions on what should be then our goals and objectives. Even as we were scaling up, we knew this was, as President Obama had called it, a surge. We knew that after several years of time, we'd probably reach the state where then those resources would start to decline. So continually with our team, we were asking the question, how can we most cost effectively use the resources that we have available for the time that they're available? And how do we begin immediately to transition our programs to Afghan lead in a sustainable way? Very good. Uh, so you mentioned the distinction between the, the war of necessity and the war of choice, but in general, it seems like um, in some quarters, both of the wars have given democracy promotion and nation building a bad name uh, just due to the length of the wars and the lack of definitive outcomes. So what should America's posture be on the promotion and defense of democratic values moving forward, both in the Middle East and in other regions, like in the face of uh, increasingly powerful authoritarian governments like China? Jonathan, that's a, a very important question. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we, uh, we committed a huge amount of resources, a lot of troops, a lot of development specialists, a lot of uh, diplomats to try to bring about social and political change in a very short period of time. I think in hindsight now, it's clear that we were too ambitious, that Political change, social change takes decades in a country. It can take centuries in a country and it has to be organic. So point one would be, be careful about being over ambitious. The second is though, on the other hand, don't give up on the idea that we can do perfect good in order to bring about changes in a country that will lead to more political inclusion, respect and dignity for the people of a country. But you have to consider several factors when you make those choices about programs and level of effort. One, frankly, how important is that country to the United States? But two, also, what's the possibility for change? 
And I look in other places that we're operating around the world, and we continue to do a lot of good. We're in a period of time right now where democracies feel under a bit of stress. This is not unique in world history. In the 1920s and the 1930s, democracies came under stress. But at the end of the day, persistence and a commitment to those values ended up with the democracies finding ways to reinvigorate themselves. It's still the best form of government that's out there. We don't want to lose confidence in that. But as we go about the world, uh, as we go about dealing with the world that we have it as today, making sure that where we make our place, our bets, so to speak, are ones where we have a more realistic chance of getting the return on investment. Mm -hmm. It's the best or the worst form of government except for all the others, right? As Winston Churchill Indeed. said. Indeed. Uh, so you came from a decades-long military career uh, before becoming ambassador. So what initially drew you to join the military and how did that service inform your work as ambassador? That, uh, that move from the military directly to an ambassadorship is pretty rare, isn't it? You know, it, it's interesting, John, to ask the question about what uh, what motivated me to go into the military. It, it's hard. It, for, truly, it's hard to get back into my mind of uh, a 16, 17 year old junior or senior at Goldsboro High School, Goldsboro, North Carolina. I think one factor was my father was from the greatest generation. He served in the Second World War as a combat engineer officer in the Pacific Theater, only served for the Second World War, then returned to civilian life. But he had positive experiences, and I think that was partly a motivation. Uh, he, in going into my senior year, took me to the Northeast to take a look at different schools I might want to apply to. I added West Point to the list. I was very impressed with the education of that institution that the institution offered, and something more: the possibility to develop as a young man leadership skills, be given great responsibilities at a young age. And so, I, 35 years later, hung the uniform up. And I was very grateful that I had that opportunity. You asked the question about how did that impact my thinking as the ambassador? Well, remember when I went to take over the uh, embassy and President Obama had made a selection, there were several unique factors perhaps that informed President Obama's decision to nominate me. One is that military career that I had, uh, as a military commander, you, you're used to dealing in an expeditionary environment with large organizations, large budgets. And so, as I explained earlier, in Afghanistan, we were going to scale up what was a pretty small mission to industrial strength and a, a small amount of resources to a lot of resources. So part of that selection, I think, was based upon what was looked at as perhaps my managerial skills and planning skills. Second, I had served in Afghanistan twice previously as a U.S. military commander. So I knew the players, uh, the learning curve for me would not be all that uh, steep. Third, uh, we were in the midst of a military surge. I think the, the president wanted an ambassador that understood the military and could give best advice, maybe not the same advice as the military, but informed. And uh, fourth, I think that a part of uh, any success that I enjoyed as ambassador was probably in part influenced by my military career, where in many occasions I had served, whether in China or whether in Korea or whether in Europe, 
in positions in which I was very close to U.S. diplomatic teams and U.S. embassies abroad. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Can you talk a little more about the, the role of the ambassador in general? What's the importance of that role? How do ambassadors promote democratic principles abroad? And what's the impact currently on our having uh, on the U.S. currently having a lot of vacancies and ambassadorships around the world? Well, a couple of points here. Uh, first of all, Jonathan, the role of ambassadors has changed dramatically over the course of the past 50 to 60 years. And why would that be? Well, first of all, uh, advances in communications technologies where uh, 70 years ago, it might be difficult to set a phone call up mm. between uh, a secretary of state and his or her minister counterpart in mm -hmm. another capital. But now communications are instantaneous. Secondly, uh, the world has changed so much in terms of the amount of travel, travels, uh, transportation's advanced, the travel's mm -hmm. easier. And the norm is now we have many kinds of international, regional meetings, all kinds of groupings where, again, 70 years ago, a secretary of state might have met the foreign minister counterpart on the, at an international meeting maybe once mm. uh, in a year. And now there might be, if it's a close ally or partner or U.S.-China, they might meet seven, eight, nine times mm. over the course of the year. So what does that lead to? It leads to now we're in an era where the ambassador, frankly, in terms of being the single voice of diplomacy mm -hmm. for Washington, D.C., that's diminished. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain posts where ambassadors still have a, a, a great responsibility there. It's usually in maybe a war-torn country or a, a remote country that might be smaller but still important at the particular moment. But by and large, the ambassador's role has changed. So now what does an ambassador do? Still very important. You mentioned one, public diplomacy. The ambassador's choices about how he or her engages in a particular country are important. You know, what, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the general thrust of our diplomacy in a particular country? Are we trying to promote democracy? Mm -hmm. Are there particular institutions and leaders that are there that we hope by uh, the choices of our public diplomacy, we can move things forward in a positive way? Uh, can an ambassador, by choice of perhaps engaging with civil society, help the women of a particular country. Those are the choices that the ambassador can make. And a final point is the ambassador is still crucially important, remembering that an embassy is far more than State Department representatives. Mm -hmm. That's the core. But an embassy, depending upon where it is, it will have development specialists. It might have representatives from the Department of Treasury. It may have agriculture experts. And the ambassador is the key person in trying to integrate that entire all-government effort as a team and then to coherently report back to Washington, D.C. in ways that lead then to allocations of resources that will be integrated and far more effective than if an ambassador is too hands off and just has a set of tribes, so to speak, right. in his or her embassy that are reporting directly back to their department and agency in Washington, D.C. And you have then a bunch of soda straws that from D.C. to the capital and the country you're serving. Uh -huh. But the sum is much less than the uh, whole of the parts. 
Interesting. So it sounds like it's become more of a managerial role than a political role compared to 50 or 60 years ago. Absolutely, Jonathan. And then the other would be that uh, the when you get to this public diplomacy a uh, hundred years ago, uh, a gentleman or a gentlewoman as an ambassador, mostly gentlemen at right. that era, uh, they uh, <clears throat> they did their diplomacy in quiet, uh, in behind closed doors mm-hmm. with the cognac, smoking a cigar with mm-hmm. their counterparts uh, in that particular capital. In fact, stay out of the public view. Mm-hmm. That was the protocol. I'd say it's almost flipped now to where an ambassador has to think very carefully about the public dimension of mm-hmm. diplomacy. That's where the influence can come. Interesting. Uh, so can we talk a little bit, uh, shifting gears to the, the next generation, the millennial generation? Uh, you know, that, that's where I come from. And, and for most of our lives, we've uh, been engaged in these wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what task lies in your view, with this generation in terms of global leadership? Uh, Let's start with that. Yeah. uh, The millennial generation, your generation, Jonathan, I have to say is not being uh, provided a very good hand by my generation Mm. as uh, as we uh, do the handoff here for future leadership, saddled with debt problems, uh, saddled with uh, challenges in terms of some erosion of confidence in our public and uh, political institutions. All of that said, though, that I do believe that democracies uh, find ways to keep on course correcting. That's mm. one of the great advantages of a democracy. They are inclusive. Mm-hmm. You need inclusive solutions in order to keep adapting to social economic changes mm-hmm. around you. And my hope is for this generation, the so-called millennial generation, is that they do stay globally engaged. The problem is that you're going to confront now as the senior leaders in our country and throughout the world are problems that do need global solutions. You Mm -hmm. can't address climate change within your own borders. You can't address supply chain problems within your own borders. You can't address problems of trying to figure out how to collectively deal with rise of autocracies that can be mm-hmm. very threatening by living within your own borders. You can't solve problems of immigration by trying to build walls. So the millennial generation, as I look at it, and I've had a lot of experience now at Stanford University, extraordinarily talented. Uh, they are a generation, I think, that understands the importance of staying engaged globally. And my hope is that they'll uh, continue to do so. The final point I'd make on the millennial generation is that I think that my generation needs to do a better job of helping to inform about the benefit of public service, national service, very broadly defined, uh, that there's a tendency in the millennial generation to look at a distance at Washington, D.C., and rightfully decide, I don't want any part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to uh, go uh, into uh, Silicon Valley. I'll be given responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I got a portfolio. Maybe I can do some good with Mm -hmm. this uh, Silicon Valley company. Or I'm going to go into Wall Street and I'm going to be an investment banker or a risk analyst. 
I think there is so much that needs to be done in the public domain. And in my own experience at Stanford University, when I have a chance to engage with the millennial generation, the young undergrads, the graduate students at Stanford. Or some of them are now in even the post-millennial generation. Yes, that's right. Now post, <laughs> beyond millennial, yeah. you're right, post-millennial generation. Uh, I find that when they have the opportunity to get a firsthand exposure to aspects of national service, the intrinsic value of it, the opportunities mm -hmm. that you get, that they'll uh, respond in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. You keep saying national service. I've, I've heard this idea thrown around that maybe we should have universal mandatory service for 18-year-olds who graduate from high school. They can either join the military or join some sort of volunteer force like AmeriCorps or join the Peace Corps or, you know, any any given number of possibilities. But there should be some sort of mandatory uh, national service to kind of integrate the, the generation and, and create a common sense of citizenship and ownership and the destiny of the country and, and all these kinds of uh, idealistic goals. I've heard a couple of people suggest that. What do you think of that idea? I think it's an idea that we need to continue to explore. And we need some we need some prominent politicians, um, hopefully some young rising politicians to get out there and embrace it. I think that the risk for our country is that in our search for uh, identity, is it called the identity politics, mm -hmm. that we can lose sight of the fact that in this great democracy of ours, the greatest single identity is that of U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. And that identity defined by what? defined by a commitment to freedom, an understanding of your political institutions, a willingness to serve. So to get back to call it National Service Act, Public Service Act, I think, Jonathan, it needs to be looked at. The, the devils, of course, will be in the details. Mm -hmm. The more comprehensive you wish to make it and uh, informed by bureaucratic rules, the more expensive it gets and then the more paradoxically divisive it could become. Mm. So I want to think in those directions, but is there a way to create a volunteer system mm -hmm. with incentives as opposed mm -hmm. to take that final step where it's actually compulsory? Uh-huh, that's, that's probably a good move. And on the, on the policy side, then we've talked a little bit about global leadership, but domestically there's generational tensions on things like the national debt, entitlements, healthcare costs, housing costs, immigration, climate change, which you mentioned, and other topics. So how can younger people act now to prepare themselves for a future where they're going to have to address those challenges? Yeah, I think the uh, to prepare for the uh, future is, one, to uh, keep yourself engaged fully in the world, to understand it, uh, to... Uh, have an appreciation of the directions that the global economy is moving and global society is moving. Secondly, then within our own country, to be a, do, a deep student of the United States of America, understand our political institutions, understand our democratic traditions. You know, you're not, if you're born in the United States of America, you immigrate, you become a United States citizen. There's nothing in your DNA that gives you that knowledge. It's something that's acquired through study, through civic action, is 
how you it, the uh, sense of it deepens and becomes your norm. So that'd be the advice for the younger mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. And that's similar to things Justice O'Connor said as well, the need to, it's not passed down in the bloodstream, as you mentioned, it, it needs to be taught to every generation, the importance of democracy. Um, so one of our last questions here is, what do you want America to be like in the year 2040 when millennials are reaching the prime of their career? So that's 20 years from now. Uh, what ideally would you like the political environment to be like, the culture, just anything in general? One would be that our politics uh, has come back more towards the center. Right now, we're in a political system that it appears, it, politics is local, it differs from place to place in the United States, and stepping back and looking at a national level, it can look, of course, worse than it really is. Having said that, we're in an era right now where we're at risk of the politics of the extreme. What we want is an evolution, and I hope we're there well before 2040, where we have our major political parties that are fighting for the center, not for the extreme. That would be one. If that occurs, then the outcome that we would have uh, with that is that it'd be a revalidation of democracy. Number two is a United States in uh, 2040, which uh, remains every bit as dynamic as it is today. As the world changes, the face of America continues to uh, change, but with the core that common identity about a commitment to democracy, freedom, respect for individuals. Third, and maybe more on the policy side, I think it would be critical to achieve those in achieving those first two goals, the third goal, and that is that we truly do, do need to look at the question of the uh, <clears throat> opportunities that are existing in our country right now and making sure we have a society in which those opportunities from date of birth are truly open to all. And I worry about the unevenness right now of opportunities within our country. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, a- any other final thoughts before we wrap up here? Uh, you mentioned equality of opportunity. That's an issue that comes up a lot. Um, any any other closing thoughts? I'd say, uh, uh, Jonathan, that uh, the let me just say a word about the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute that uh, essential in our country and the preservation of our democracy is an engaged civil society. And I commend the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute very much in the uh, traditions of Alex de Tocqueville about finding ways for Americans in their communities to come together talk about the problems of the day and get a sense of responsibility and ownership for them. That's how democracies will thrive. Thank you so much. We'll keep at that. So thank you, Ambassador Carl Eikenberry, for joining us on the uh, Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast. Uh, For our listeners, make sure to uh, follow us, subscribe, visit our website at O'ConnorELN.org. So thanks again, Ambassador. Thank you.